0: Just a heads up, there are a few curse words in this, John. My fault.
1: What's good, y'all? I'm Gene Demby.
0: <laughs> I'm Shereen Marisol Miraji and this is Code Switch Live.
1: Okay, so the applause you're hearing is, is, is fake, y'all. It's not real.
0: But we did perform a live show on April 15th in front of a live audience, but it was a Zoom audience still trying to be safe out here.
1: Yes, we are still trying to be safe. This was in partnership with WHYY, the member station of Philly, because this was all Philly, John. Shout out to my hometown. Thank you to all the listeners who tuned into that. But yeah, Shereen and I, um, we were live from our respective cribs.
0: Yes, Gene, you were in Washington, D.C., and I was sitting at my dining room table in Los Angeles.
1: We got a stacked lineup for y'all. Later in the show, we're going to do one of our listener favorite segments, Ask Code Switch. That's when we answer listener questions. This time, though, they're all going to be related to the 215. We're going to get a visit from one of our play cousins, the poet Denise Froman. But first...
0: And not least... If you're as old as Gene Demby, you will recognize our first guest as Cousin Pam from The Cosby Show, Mm -hmm. or perhaps Maxine Shaw Esquire Mm -hmm. from Living Single. If you're a little bit younger, you may recognize her as Detective LaToya from Get Out, or perhaps the Riz's mom on Wu-Tang and American Saga. I'm talking about activist, actress, producer, businesswoman, all the things, Philly daughter, And Girls High Hall of Famer, Erica Alexander.
2: I love it.
1: All right, so we didn't mention this in your intro, but very relevant to our show. You have a podcast as well, which is about reparations. We are a podcast about race. You came onto our podcast to talk about your show, which is called The Big Payback.
0: And this is how you described it, Erica, to me. You described it as a podcast where two people, one Black woman... That's you, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) One white man. That's your co-host Whitney Dow uh, talking about slavery and racism and the United States of America, all in the conversation of reparations. And I was just listening to the podcast recently. I was listening to the episode called Fight Club, where you all have opponents of reparations and proponents of reparations kind of duke it out in this virtual boxing ring. And I would love to just play a little bit of that for the audience.
2: Coming to the ring, weighing in at over 400 years, the case against reparations says, what more do you people want? Slavery and all that bad stuff was a long time ago. Enough is enough. That was then, this is now. Get over it, get on with it. Fair is fair.
3: Coming to the ring, also weighing in at over 400 years, the case for reparations says, are you kidding? The forced, unpaid labor of millions of black people built this country and its wealth under slavery.
1: Hi, Erica. So, so much of the conversation about reparations is just like trying to define it, right? Like trying to figure out what reparations even means. So what does it mean to you?
2: I think it means that America, the government, finally starts to address and attend to the great, they call it the great sin of America, and also give restitution to the descendants of slavery. Uh,
0: On the episode where I talked to you and Whitney, you said, in order to form a more perfect union, payback's a bitch. And for people who don't know, that's the preamble to the constitution, the payback's a bitch part got edited out of the final version. (laughs) (laughs) But no, for real, Erica, what did you mean by that? In order to form a more perfect union, payback's a bitch.
2: They promised something in the constitution that they could not give. They, they sold wolf tickets to America. Yeah. They said that this was the land of the free and the home of the brave. And then they put millions of stolen, kidnapped people from Africa into chains. That is not a perfect union. We understand that to get to a perfect union, there's no such thing, but to get to it, you have to acknowledge where you were. You know how unformed and evil That was how they had to twist themselves inside out to create that kind of landscape for millions of people to go on hundreds of years to be treated in that way and still be talking about that this was um, America and and it was for everyone, a land of equality. So um, I'm just glad now that we are out of chains and we are able to speak up for ourselves. We're able to say, your founding fathers are not your founding fathers. They were the beginning people who put pen to paper It's up to us in this third reconstruction to make it what they were talking about.
1: It's kind of remarkable to think about just how much the conversation of reparations has moved just in the last few years. You know, you've been following this project in Evanston, Illinois, which for people who don't know is a suburb of Chicago. And they're doing this project in which, you know, to achieve these things you're talking about, to get to racial equity, to sort of um, rectify past harms. They want to give black folks $25,000 for home repairs, to buy homes. Um, as, as a part of a reparations program that they're piloting there. But some critics will say, that's not really a reparations program. That's like a, a housing grant program. So I'm wondering how you think of that program and the pushback to, like, the sort of limitations of it.
2: Well, the program you're talking about is Alder um, woman, Robin Luce uh, She was the first person in um, America, actually, to pass mm-hmm. a bill that gave reparations to African Americans for slavery. Now, the thing is, when you say that's not really reparations, Uh, To some people, that is not reparations. They feel like reparations can only be about restitution and making amends to people who are descendants of slavery. There's people who have a problem with every person getting them or people to the fact that they're saying, well, you know, I got harmed by that bill, but I don't have a home anymore, or I'm not going to buy a home anymore. I'm not there. Why don't you come and find me? Why why isn't this uh, appropriate for me? There's all sorts of things that go on into it, it's very complex. And here's what I say, that they may all be collectively right and wrong at the same time, but she did something. At least she tried, and more importantly, she's trying, and her trying will help us understand how this goes and the criticism and complications going forward, but also the joy and the fact that she pushed it through with a mostly white council. So that means on a Mm. local level, if you're able to do something, you might be able to do it on a federal level, which is where it really... Um, uh, needs to be to have the heft and the weight of America to make it happen. I say personally that the fact that it was done at all, good, bad, or ugly, is a good thing. Hmm.
0: So getting back to the fact that you are working on this documentary and you've been working on this podcast and you've been doing it with Whitney Dow, who is a white man who grew up very differently from you. Uh, I know you all have been working together for almost two years now, or maybe even a a little more than two years now. Uh, We hear often that we have to have uncomfortable conversations across race in order to get past all of the hurt and all of the anger. You've been having uncomfortable conversations (laughs) with a white man for two years now. Um, Yes. Would you mind talking to us if you feel comfortable about maybe one of the most uncomfortable moments?
1: <laughs> this is a safe space. This is just us and a couple thousand people.
0: One of the most uncomfortable moments uh, between you
2: and Whitney? I think that there are uncomfortable spaces that I can't specifically point out, but I can point out a feeling that I have that overwhelms me okay. sometimes. But so many white people who are in and doing great things inside of the race conversation, I think they, at a certain point, they don't know how far they have to go. And I don't wanna be the one to sit there and um, hold them hostage to something that they may not understand. But what's uncomfortable is having those moments and feeling like disgusted by Mm -hmm. it. And he's probably disgusted by me and I get disgusted by him. And you wonder if you can truly be friends inside of something like this. Not that you can't have the conversation, but you, can you be friends if a person doesn't move beyond where they are? Whiteness is so extraordinarily corrupt and toxic mm. that you must work every day to understand that you have been steeped in it. And so I think the, the hurtful thing comes is that if, if I feel like I've hurt his feelings or um, that he um, may not understand stand me, he sort of, is sort of going through the motions of maybe identifying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: But he's like intellectualizing it more than like really feeling. Intellectualizing
2: it. And it pisses me off. I'll just say like that. But I I think what it is, this ultimately is that I'm not in a zoo. Blackness is not in a zoo to be watched and Mm -hmm. observed. It's actually whiteness that is on trial here. Do you think it's been worth it? It has definitely been worth it just because we got to know (laughs) Co-Switch. There you go.
0: Erica Alexander, the great.
1: When we come back, Shireen gets a lesson in Philadelphia slang. The word is John.
0: We'll be back with more of that John after this quick John. Oh, my God. (laughs) This message comes from NPR sponsor Wise, the smart way to move money around the world. Playing hide-and-seek is fun, but not when it comes to exchange rates. When you send, spend, or receive money internationally, you want to see that you're getting the real exchange rate. The WISE account always gives you the real rate when you send or spend between 55 currencies. You pay a low conversion fee and see everything up front. See what fairness in international finance feels like. Try WISE for free at WISE.com slash NPR. Support also comes from Best Fiends. If you find yourself choosing the longest checkout line, that can only mean one thing. You've downloaded Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game, which means where others see a hassle, all you see is a chance to play one more level a few more times. Turn dull moments into pockets of fun. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R.
1: Best Fiends.
0: I'm Yowei Shaw.
1: I'm Kia Myakunatis.
0: We're the hosts of the NPR podcast, Invisibilia.
1: You can think of Invisibilia kind of like a sonic blacklight.
0: When you switch us on, you'll hear surprising and intimate stories. Stories that help you notice things in your world that maybe you didn't see before. Listen to the Invisibilia podcast from NPR. Jean. Shireen.
1: Code switch. All right, Shireen. So the sun is setting on April
0: 2021. How poetic.
1: Yes, and that's appropriate, because we've already established on the show that April is National Poetry Month, and we were pleased to welcome all-star Code Switch play cousin back to the show, Denise Froman.
0: Boricua! Ya tu (laughs) sabes. Denise Froman was with us at our live show at the Apollo Theater, which was an amazing, amazing moment in my life. I don't know about yours, Gene.
1: Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Definitely
0: Maybe the highlight of my life so far, my wedding almost grabbed that title, but not quite.
1: I really hope Nico is not listening to you. (laughs) Love
0: you, babe. It was a great (laughs) night, too. Uh, And for those of you who don't know Denise, Denise Froman is a poet. She is an educator, a former professional basketball player in Puerto Rico. And you all know how we love our basketball in Puerto Rico. (laughs) And she joined us from her living room in West Philadelphia to read us one of her poems.
3: Part of defending the crossover or debunking the myth that Puerto Rico needs the United States. Stay low, don't believe the shoulders. They lie like two false gods, will lead you in the wrong direction, will leave you in limbo, then have you believing hype and history you didn't write, will have you sign your life away. Instead, Believe the waste, everything else, optical illusion. Think Jones Act, Operation Bootstrap, the Labor Department's Migration Office. Don't board the ship of shifts. See, the trick to surviving is to never get caught flat-footed, never get caught reaching for something you can't have. Niece, What's up? What's up? So good to see you both.
1: I mean, I like to think that you, you brought this poem to us because it's the, you know, last month was the 24th anniversary of a seminal Philadelphia moment when Allen Iverson crossed TF out of Michael Jordan at a home game. <laughs> so I'm just curious, what made you decide to bring this poem about crossing somebody over today?
3: Well, I, I think I've been working on a series of basketball sonnets for a while. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, basketball, like poetry, uh, is about undoing expectations. And the sonnet specifically has a turn in it. It's called a volta, a pivot, right? Like a pivot foot in basketball. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. basketball felt like a, a perfect sort of um, metaphor, way to have this this conversation. And And the crossover, Gene, as you might know, it, it, as, as AI perfected, it's a, it's a dangerous move, but it's a move that's about intentionally misleading you. Right. I'm going to take you in this mm-hmm. direction, knowing uh, that I have full intention of moving in another. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, I can't believe I'm going to admit this on, on the code switch, but as someone who uh, I've, I've had my ankles broken on a, a few occasions. Um,
1: <laughs> so brave, so brave to admit that.
3: <laughs> a <few laughs> Just a occasions. few, but, uh, but, but, <laughs> what you learn is is sort of to not take the bait. And um, so, so basketball felt like a perfect uh, metaphor for this be- relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico because it's about illusions and broken promises. Ooh, say more about that. Say more about illusions and broken promises. For me, what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, especially on Twitter, just feels really misguided and paternalistic. What do we do with Puerto Rico? Not what does Puerto Rico want? And it made me think about conversations that I had with my mom in the direct aftermath of Maria, when we saw the veil of democracy unlifted and what was underneath Mm. was colonialism and second-class citizenship. And so in the midst of this devastating event, right, this humanitarian crisis made worse by a botched recovery, right, FEMA leaving water bottles uh, that were found months later in in Dorado, like. I was connecting what me and my mom were seeing to a longer history of U.S. colonial policies. As I started to connect what we were seeing in real time to this history of imposition and exploitation, where the U.S. is benefiting, my mom got scared. And you know, my mom, oh, who wow. grew up born on the island into deep poverty, the daughter of coffee farmers, um, she got scared. And and I got the sense that you know. It's like, are you telling me I've been lied to? Are you telling me it's not my fault? Are you telling me that the paternalistic and racist ideas that we've been fed about ourselves, that we can't govern ourselves? Are you telling me that's not true? And so this poem was really born from that personal place, but also sort of keeping in mind that uh, this is a, a conversation that I think we are having more and more, but maybe not in the right ways.
0: And I feel like poetry is such a wonderful way of bringing light to, to all of these really deep and complicated issues. It's just another way to talk about this stuff. Um, and I, and I am so grateful for poets and poetry. Poetry is something that I don't know. I never thought that I really loved and I realized, Oh, I don't just love it. I need it. (laughs) I really need it. And, and a poem like this, you know, I don't know who you wrote this for Denise, but I feel like you wrote it. Mm. for me
1: that was your relationship to poetry as well right Denise like you were not always someone who who really dug poetry ironically your
3: no I thought poetry was corny um I really did I mean a lot of the poetry we're exposed to in in our you know public school education I grew up in New York City public schools um you know is uh written by older white cis men and are not really reflecting the cultural experiences that I had growing up. So it was really spoken word. And again, when I got to college and, and was exposed to the New Rican poetry movement that I saw like that speaking of lies, like that was a lie, right? That Puerto Ricans and Latinos and Latinxes and, and just people of color in general have just a tremendously rich literary tradition and, and heritage. And I think it was more so uh, what kept me from poetry than, than sort of what brought me to it.
0: I wanna ask you, one last very serious question before we move on to the next segment, which you are going to be a part of. Have you ever used the word John in a poem?
3: Oh, that's a great question. Thank um, you. No, I haven't, but ask me in a decade.
1: John.
2: John. 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 John.
1: John. I pronounce it John. It's a catch-all phrase and just really represents all sorts of nouns.
2: I would use it as a pronoun to replace literally any noun ever.
1: That's my John right there.
2: That John was crazy. Oh, I got to go take this John for a walk, like talking about my
3: dog. I forgot that John. Can you pick up the John?
2: What's that John about? The word is John. Please don't tell these fools how to pronounce it because we need to tell the transplants apart from everybody
0: else and we know now that denise is a transplant so we're going to bring her back but before we do that we've got to tell you we have entered the ask code switch segment of the show and if you don't listen to the show all the time ask code switch is when our listeners ask us questions about race and identity and our first question is about that word you just heard repeated over and over and over again the word is john how did i do how did ooh, I do, Gene? Yeah,
1: ooh. But we can we can work on it. We can work on it. Okay. Better All than right, when right. we started talking about this. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thank you. So um, our questioner, she is from the Frankfurt neighborhood of Philadelphia. She is a white woman and she is in her 40s. I'm sorry. I said, I just uh, swallowed forties, but I'm really proud of that age. You are 40 is a wonderful age. You
1: would say that.
0: <laughs> so she's a white woman from Frankfurt, Philadelphia. She's in her forties. And she asks us, is it okay for her to use the word John? And before we answer that question, Jean, let's talk a little bit more about one of your favorite words.
1: Yes. As a, as a native John speaker, I, I feel really proud of this word. Like we heard in that montage, Shereen. So John is sort of, it's sort of a placeholder for anything, right? Like it's one of the beauties about John is just how much utility it has. Cuz John is anything, right? I can be like, "Oh, I'm off I'm off mic. I got to get closer to the John, right? The camera's yes. are focused Oh, I got to fix this John, right? You could refer <laughs> to a person as a John like I'm trying to hop this John down from the pocket. But yeah, that's that's how John works.
0: Could I say that's hella John? Is that like a way to use it? Get
1: out. No, John is not a modifier, <laughs> it's not an adjective. John is a thing. Okay. John is the John.
0: So we called up a linguist, someone who studies words uh, at the university of Pennsylvania. His name is Taylor Jones. And he told us that John is 40 years old. Just like you. (laughs) There we go. There we go again. And has a very strong relationship to African-American English, the word John, and the root of the word John is the word joint.
1: Yeah. And like, a lot of black things in Philadelphia. It has cousins in D.C. Um, in D.C., yeah. where I live, they say "jount." Uh, in Memphis, Taylor tells us they say jaint. I'm sorry, Memphians, if y'all listen to this, I never, never said that word out loud. So my bus. And Taylor told us that "john" sort of crosses generations among Black Philadelphians. Um, but you know, it's hard to sort of pin down just exactly how old the word is because you know, older folks stop using slang as they get older. So maybe they use "john" a whole lot back in the day, and it just slipped out of usage for people who were like boomers
0: you know what i'm saying denise denise philly transplant before you answer this woman's question tell us do you use the word john i'm
1: very curious about in this.
3: your everyday life all right so when i moved to philly i learned three things a sub a role is a hokey mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. a
3: bodega is a poppy store uh-huh, yep, and yep. john is the beautiful all-encompassing noun that you so wonderfully described yes um, so when I first moved to Philly, no, like the first couple of years, I didn't say it at all. And even to mm-hmm. this day, um, I primarily use joint because I have a longer history with that word, but over time, because I've been here so long and it's a word used in my friend circles, in my neighborhood, mm-hmm. the neighborhood I live in, in the communities that I work with and for, um, over time, it's become a natural part of my lexicon where I say it every now and then without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. This question kind of makes me think of an essay that Alexander Chi wrote about what writers uh, should be asking themselves when they want to write about the other. Mm -hmm. And basically, he says, if you're not in community with people that you want to write about, the chances are you're intruding. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so the question of can I, you know, use this feels like can I take this? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you can't if you can't see me, then then maybe you don't.
1: Right. And so one of the things that Taylor was saying to us was like, John is the site of conflict because you got to consider the sort of recent history of Philadelphia, right? You had white flight. White flight and segregation and then, you know, movement back into the city and gentrification and all of this. Then John becomes the site of conflict.
3: It's also like if you're going to use it, you need to say it right. Ooh, and and can... if you need to be taught, then you're probably not enough around enough people who use it.
1: So wait, 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 quick, wait. wait, wait. Mm. How is Shireen's joining? Like I was yeah.
3: Yes. How's my John? It's getting better. It's getting better. Good. Oh, thank it's you. It's getting better. In the, do you want to tell my him John how you said it improved. in the beginning? John. <laughs> oh John. 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 It was very funny. It, it is an incredible word. Probably one of the most incredible words um, that I've ever heard. And, and I think it's something that should be respected and revered for its creative genius. And that's my take on it. Yes.
0: So, to keep it simple, uh, let's answer our questioner's question. <laughs> uh, if you have to ask for permission to use the word John, probably shouldn't be using the word John. Uh, when, when we were talking about this and really thinking about this, I learned something. I learned that white Philadelphians also have their own lingo. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. And so, a word that I heard that white Philadelphians use a lot is the word
2: use. Oh,
0: like absolutely. use guys and, and things like that. So I was thinking, oh, maybe that's a better word for the question asker. But then again, that word has its own like regional context and class, class context. Stuff stuff yeah. Mm-hmm. So so to wrap this up, you know, in the spirit of solidarity, in the spirit of unity, I just like to say. None of you John's, regardless of race, know how to pronounce the word water.
1: Oh,
3: the end
0: can I get a rim shot no
1: no water what
0: is
1: (laughs) what is water water
0: oh Denise we gotta say bye to Denise we have to say bye Denise Denise (laughs) Froman the amazing poet educator basketball player thank you so
1: much homie thank
0: you Denise Uh, maybe I still need to work on pronunciation of J A W N. I won't say it yes. here, but I have yes. a lifetime to practice. Knock on wood. I need some wood here. Uh, in terms of this episode, though, we are out of time
1: because that's our show. Philly, thank you so much for hosting us. I want to shout out W H Y Y? We cannot wait to actually um, like do this in front of an in-person audience one day. Special thanks to Emily Kinslow and Sandra Clark for making this virtual event possible. To Erica Alexander, our new big sister. We love you. We do. And Denise Froman, our play cousin forever and ever and ever. Appreciate you.
0: Big, big thanks to DJ B. He was our live DJ during the show and kept us body rolling all night. Every MC needs a good DJ. And if you were at the live show you know his music was popping big thanks to summer Tomad and Jess Kung for the reporting on this episode very 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 helpful invaluable i believe the word is and also to our editor leah danella thank you for taking my late night calls when i was panicking that i couldn't do this and i kept asking if it was too late to cancel
1: <laughs> and you were like
0: yes shireen it's too late
1: Yes, we have come. Love you. And thank you to our other superhero, Ali Prescott, and the NPR Presents team. This episode was produced by Kumari Devarajan and edited by Steve Drummond.
0: And a shout out to the rest of Use Code Switch Johns Natalie Escobar, Karen Grigsby Bates, Alyssa Zhang Perry, and L.A. Johnson.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just one more thing I'm Gene Demby. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji.
1: Peace.
2: In stressful times, you want to spend your time checking out not just what's best, but what's best for you. We know you care about what you watch, what you read, and what you listen to. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast is with you five days a week to make sure that time is well spent. Listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.